Critique of Maoist Reason by J. Mufuad Paul Introduction In the face of critical passivity and dry formulism, we must uphold our collective capacity to think thought. The multiple articulations of bourgeois reason demand that we accept the current state of affairs as natural, reducing critical thinking to that which functions within the boundaries drawn by its order. Even when we break from the diktat of this reason to pursue revolutionary projects, it is difficult to break from the way this ideological hegemony has trained us to think from the moment we were born. Since we are still more or less immersed in capitalist culture, from our jobs to the media we consume, the training persists. Hence, while we might supersede the boundaries drawn by bourgeois reason, it remains a constant struggle to escape its imaginary. The simplicity encouraged by bourgeois reasoning, formulaic repetition, a refusal to think beneath the appearance of things, thus finds its way into the reasoning of those who believe they have slipped its grasp. We must always be vigilant in the renewal of our thinking, struggling against the patterns of thought encouraged by bourgeois reason, so to keep our counter-reasoning sharp. Such vigilance is doubly required for the most revolutionary expression of such reasoning to date, Maoist reason. To think Marxism is Marxism is now also to think Maoism. Lest the title of this book is misunderstood, let us begin with a definition of the concept critique. Critique is not synonymous with criticism, although it can contain multiple criticisms. I am certain there will be those who read this title and misinterpret, misrepresent it, as being the kind of negative criticism that implies, quote, rejection, unquote, of its object of investigation. That is, the, quote, critique of Maoist reason, unquote, will be dishonestly read as a rejection of Maoism, a critical denunciation of this theoretical terrain. Some readers might wonder, then, why I would risk provoking this misapprehension rather than choosing another name. But such a provocation is intentional. As we shall see, it is precisely this kind of failure in thought, dogmatic denunciation, semantic formulism, dishonest representation, that this project aims to chart, drawing important demarcations. Neither pejorative criticism, let alone outright rejection, a critique is the rigorous examination of its object of investigation. Critical analysis, evaluation, assessment, engagement. For example, Kant's critique of pure reason was an attempt to thoroughly analyze the meaning of reason, an elevation of a curious type of enlightenment, quote, pure reason, unquote, over others' claims to reason. Sartre's critique of dialectical reason was not a rejection of dialectics, but an attempt to rigorously analyze what dialectics was, according to Sartre, to be clear, in opposition to other definitions of dialectical reason. Bembe's critique of black reason, far from a rejection of black thought, was intended to analyze its vicissitudes and think a unified thought. Regardless of what we might think of the efficacy of the above project's meaning of, quote, critique, unquote, is clear. Naming my own project a critique of Maoist reason, then, is somewhat tongue-in-cheek. I am placing myself within this philosophical convention while also being critical of it, quite aware that what I intend to accomplish in this book is neither as ambitious nor misplaced as the corpus of philosophical treatises that name themselves according to this convention. In many ways, my work to date is more accurately a, quote, critique of Maoist reason, unquote, than this book. Indeed, both continuity and rupture and demarcation and demystification form a much more rigorous approach to this problematic. Everything I have written to date, including my blog and all published essays, has been concerned with a philosophical critique of Maoism in general in the interest of providing clarity to Maoist reason. In some ways, my right to proclaim the, quote, critique, unquote, of this theoretical terrain has passed since continuity and rupture was precisely this project, particularly as it stood in relation to the, quote, prolegomena, unquote, of the communist necessity. There is a reason, however, that I have chosen to mobilize the name of, quote, critique, unquote, now. In the time accrued since the writing and publishing of Continuity and Rupture, 
Malbus Reason has produced a variety of expressions that require philosophical intervention. In that time, Ajith, one of our clearest contemporary thinkers, was arrested and thus caused our philosophical reasoning to suffer further. But who is this we and our? On the surface, this we is the unity of myself and those who are reading this text, together thinking the vicissitudes of thought as they are encountered. More substantially, though, this we is the collective subject of Maoist reason who are already convinced that Maoism is the most scientific development of Marxism to date, and who, together, are part of the general Maoist international communist movement. We Maoists. This text is intended to be for those of us who already accept the basic claims about the necessity of Maoism and are engaged in thinking and practicing this necessity. All descriptions and prescriptions of this politics concern the we who are Maoists. We who are militantly struggling for Maoist reason and demand that it be thought as the primary thought of revolutionary science. One significant impediment in developing such a critique, however, is the problem of the polemic. Having inherited a tradition of polemical exchanges that makes up the backbone of many of the great Marxist texts, contemporary Marxist radicals, especially Maoists, have become too enamored by the form of this genre to understand the importance of the content the great polemical classics always rhetorically contained. Within the Maoist milieu, the rhetorical shell of this genre has been used as a substitute for thinking our politics when differences in line have manifested. Such a problem is inherited from the new communist movement, where multiple ML grouplets sought to overinflate their importance through the innumerable articles and tracts that mimic the rhetoric and tone of Lenin. While there were important differences in lines of demarcation that needed to be drawn in that period, as they are in every period, often the over-reliance on aping the style of the great texts and the failure to critically engage turn non-antagonistic contradictions antagonistic. Hence, some groups from that period, such as the Sojourner Truth Organization, that were frustrated by the fact that the super-proliferation of polemical exchanges were creating more division than unity, and often over hair-splitting differences, felt that the genre of the polemic should be abandoned. Clearly, I do not think the genre of the polemic should be abandoned. After all, I have written in this genre. Nor do I think that demarcation should not be drawn and defended, because this is what I have spent years doing, and at what this intervention is also aimed. But I do feel that an over-reliance on this genre's form functions to undermine what its paradigm examples sought to underscore, the power of critique. When we look at the earliest examples of prolonged Marxist polemics, Marx's The Poverty of Philosophy and Engels' Anti-During, we are struck by the fact that these texts were also devoted to thoroughly understanding the line they were rhetorically demolishing and, through the power of critique, creatively developing theory. The rhetorical characteristics of the genre serve the rigorous thinking of thought. Unfortunately, the commonplace polemic of today is a dismal echo of the great polemical works of the past. Within the world of Maoist reason, we find polemics that, devoted to the style of the past, are designed mainly to escape critique. For those Maoist groups that function within the imperialist metropoles and who are largely younger, the situation is complicated by the conditioning of social media. The rhetorical form of the polemic when it appears on blogs, Facebook, Twitter, and other similar platforms serves as a way to avoid the content of critique, isometric to the practice of quote doubling down unquote on a position against any and every rational argument that call this position into question. The condition need to respond quickly, to read lazily, or to reduce arguments to angry comment wars, resulting in the impoverishment of critical investigation. So much for the science of Marxism-Leninism-Maoism. But Marxism-Leninism-Maoism is the current name the science of historical materialism bears, and if our reason as cadre is to be scientific, then we must recapture the critical thought of critique, refuse to be absorbed by doctrinal thinking that rejects criticism by hiding behind rhetoric that obscures ignorance, 
and think the content of our reasoning is the third and contemporary stage of revolutionary science. Chapter 1. The Route Charted to Date When I wrote Continuity and Rupture, I had three goals in mind. One, to argue why Maoism was logically the third stage of revolutionary science. Two, to clarify the general meaning of Maoism. Three, to clarify the role of philosophy in relation to revolutionary science, particularly its third stage, the practice of which I was using to elaborate all three goals. My aim was to rigorously elucidate the general boundaries of the terrain, contributing the first systematic philosophical intervention upon the Marxist-Leninist-Maoist theoretical developments generated by revolutionary practice. In a context where former quote-unquote Maoist philosophers such as Alain Badu and Jacques Rancière were becoming popular and using this popularity to speak authoritatively about their Maoist past, it needed to be demonstrated that Maoism quo Maoism had passed them by. That is, aside from some early germinal attempts, such as Badu's theory of the subject, their post-Maoism was grossly premature. Unlike the many philosophical engagements with the terrain of Marxism-Leninism that existed up to the point of their break from the trajectory of revolutionary science, there was a decided lack of the same kind of engagement with Marxism-Leninism-Maoism. Perhaps the most significant reason for this lack of engagement on their part was, as I argued, that Maoism did not come into being as Maoism until the end of the 1980s. Hence, for the Badus and Ranciers of the world, revolutionary science had already run its course and, in their minds, received its final and most thorough philosophical clarification in the work of their teacher, Louis Althusser. Their experience of the political landscape post-1968 France was similar to what the proto-Maoist movements of the larger New Communist movement would encounter, the limits of Marxism-Leninism, even the most anti-revisionist variants to date. Imagining that the most faithful form of anti-revisionist Marxism-Leninism was not enough, they abandoned what they felt was no longer a live theoretical option. There is no reason to speculate further into the thinking and practice that led such thinkers towards their current theoretical positions. The point here is that sustained and rigorous philosophical interventions in revolutionary science reached both their apex and nadir with the work of Louis Althusser around the time that anti-revisionist period collapsed. Since then, despite the eruption of Maoism proclaimed by the Communist Party of Peru in the 1980s and globalized by the Revolutionary International Movement in 1993, philosophical practices lagged behind. Through its multiple revolutionary movements, specifically the sequence of people's wars waged in the Philippines, Turkey, Bangladesh, Peru, Nepal, India, and Manipur, of which only the Philippines, India, and Manipur are ongoing, Maoism has generated a vital theoretical terrain. Philosophy, which is not the same as theory, has continued to lag behind. Although philosophy will always tell theory because of what it is, the philosophical practice of contemporary Maoism is currently impoverished. To be clear, other Marxist tendencies are also philosophically impoverished, all of them relying on past philosophical interventions or eclectic and useless philosophical investigations, and so Maoism is no worse off than other Marxisms on the philosophical front. But since Maoism has been generating a more vital expression of theory through praxis, and because it is the contemporary heir of revolutionary science, it demands and requires superior and rigorous philosophy. To be clear, dormant and sterile expressions of Marxist philosophy have been generated by non-Maoist fields of theory. Whether they were the result of autonomism, rebel Trotskyisms, pre-Lenin Marxian orthodoxy, or a patchwork of eclectic appreciations of Marxism matters very little. These are philosophical articulations of a defanged and thus meaningless Marxism. What should matter for the philosopher who calls themselves Marxist is a theory that can satisfy the claims of Marxism, i.e. a theory about making revolution. As I argued in Continuity and Rupture, this theory is Maoism. 
The main reason for this philosophical impoverishment is that Maoism is a theory immersed in making revolution and thus, because of this focus, has not had the time or space to generate the kind of philosophical intervention that these other expressions, who lack the vital theory born from revolutionary practice, can masquerade. This is not to say that there haven't been significant philosophical interventions in the terrain of Maoism. Rather, these interventions have been incomplete. Anurahata Gandhi's and Hesilia Yami's work on proletarian feminism is one such intervention. The Communist Maoist Party of Afghanistan's intervention against Avakianism is another. Ajith's work, however, is probably the most significant. But Gandhi died in the course of struggle, Yami ended up following the rightist line in Nepal that annihilated the gains of its people's war, and Ajith was arrested. We lack a thorough and rigorous philosophical critique of our thought, mainly because those best posed to provide these interventions are subjected to violent state interference. In order to thoroughly think our thought, though, we must be attentive to the two primary modes of thinking that admit revisionism and thus function as short-circuit Maoist reason, eclecticism and dogmatism. Dogmatism and Eclecticism It is wrong to think of dogmatism and eclecticism as two extremes on a continuum. At first glance, they do seem to be simple opposites or even a formal contradiction. Dogmatism, characterized by formulaic and religious thinking, is by definition opposed to creative and fresh thinking insofar as it opposed to anything that strays from doctrinaire analysis. Eclecticism, defined by an unbounded and rigorous thinking, where one constantly searches for new and overly creative conceptions, the mixing and matching of concepts without scientific rigor, thus appears to be synonymous with, quote, non-dogmatism, unquote. We need to be careful in conceptualizing the relationship of these modes of thinking in such a manner. Rather, we should think of these two modes of thought as a unity of opposites that, because of their moments of torsion and or tension that manifest as one, opposite extremes based on their formal definition discussed above, two, isometric thought patterns where they mimic each other, three, interesting trajectories that overlap. In Continuity and Rupture, I characterize dogmatism and eclecticism as, quote, characteristic symptoms of the contradiction between revisionism and anti-revisionism, unquote. Thinking of their dialectical relationship, I wrote, in some ways it is now possible to speak of dogmato-eclecticism and eclecto-dogmatism. There will be those who treat their eclecticism as an unquestioned fact, believing without scientific proof that incoherence is a virtue. There will be those who incoherently mix and match every orthodoxy. Indeed, eclecticists can sometimes be dogmatically committed to their patchwork theoretical approach, refusing to consider any argument to the contrary. Similarly, those committed to a dogmatic version of Marxism-Leninism have been known to eclectically incorporate radical feminism, some forms of identity politics, and other non-Marxist conceptions into an orthodoxy of phrase-mongering that refuses to rigorously think through these disparate elements of thought. On the level of formal appearance, of course, it does appear as if these two modes of thought function as distinct extremes. And on this level, it is correct to presume this is the case. Those defined primarily by a dogmatic attitude will treat all creative interventions as eclectic deviations. Those defined primarily by an eclectic attitude will treat all militants faithful to a science as guilty of dogmatism. Dogmatism as a distinct mode of thinking within Marxist reason possesses three characteristics. There is what Mao called, quote, book worship, unquote, the habit of treating classical theoretical texts and theoreticians as sacrosanct and beyond criticism. The texts and thinkers become akin to sacred doctrine and sainted interlocutors. Marx or Engels cannot be wrong, for example, and to even speak of their limitations, i.e. their unavoidable Eurocentrism, is treated as heretical. Promoting the idea of pure Marxism, thus conceptualizing theoretical deviations in terms of religious apostasy, is another characteristic. 
A third characteristic is the fear of thinking beyond aesthetic rigidity, the worry that reading other texts, either by Marxists of other traditions or by non-Marxists, will corrupt cadre. While it is the case that all these characteristics can be defended as necessary, deemed quote scientific unquote instead of quote dogmatic unquote by the Apostle, we know that they are not properly Marxist since the greatest transformative moments in the history of revolutionary science have also been defined by breaking from these dogmatic habits. Those individuals and groups that attempted to hold the science back appealed to book worship, theoretical purity, and rigid thinking, i.e. Enver Hoxha's criticism of the Cultural Revolution is a classic example of this dogmatic revisionism. While it is indeed the case that some militants dedicated to transformative moments demonstrated similar characteristics in their defense of these ruptures, i.e. finding precedence in Marx and Engels, the appropriate quotes, etc., this only demonstrates that dogmatism is such a powerful mode of thinking that it forces even its enemies to speak according to its patterns and to justify themselves. The state of the science is such that dogmatism is compelling, forced to defend its legitimacy against the hostility of the bourgeois order and all of those ideologies that would deny its scientific status. Historical materialism cannot help but generate rigidly dedicated adherents. Rigid adherents either break, rejecting their convictions and sometimes becoming outright reactionaries, or isolate themselves from the masses so as to sink deeper into their religious illusions. Eclecticism as a distinct mode of thinking is known by characteristics that are equally damaging to Marxist reason. For example, there's the habit of refusing theoretical continuity in the interest of pursuing what is quote new unquote and quote fresh unquote without any reason given besides the uncritical assumption that what is new is better than what is old. There is also the characteristic of sampling theoretical takes from a variety of traditions, the tendency to create a patchwork Marxism from whatever seems interesting and novel. Another habit is the obsessive need to define scientific reason as rigid and thus pursue a looser and seemingly more creative conception of theoretical rupture. All of the contemporary Marxisms that attempt to preserve Marxism while distracting it from its supposed quote rigid unquote past flirt it with eclecticism. Like dogmatism, eclecticism can advance, masked by trying to translate its eclecticism into appropriate scientific language. By recognizing that historical materialism is open to the future, that it has always developed by engaging with other forms of thought, eclecticism becomes parasitical upon the correct insight and thus attempts to translate its depredations into scientific language. In any case, we should treat dogmatism and eclecticism as distinct modes of thought while also recognizing the ways in which they intersect or function as adjuncts of each other. They're not only oppositional extremes in thought, but, as aforementioned, meet each other at various points of their manifestation. In the end, all thought that promotes revisionism is united in revisionism. So what ultimately unites dogmatism and eclecticism is that, one, they are both deviations of correct modes of thinking, two, they both function, in their distinctions and admixtures, to prevent the rigorous and scientific thinking of thought. They are together the shadow and eclipse of Maoist reason. A systematic critique of Maoist reason thus begins by understanding those modes of reasoning that it necessarily generates in the course of its establishment, as Marxism-Leninism did before Maoism and Marxism did before Leninism. The reason why dogmatism and eclecticism are deviations of correct modes of thinking is due to what science is, and if Maoism is a moment in the unfolding of revolutionary science, then it will generate the same problems as science in general. Within the practice of science, it makes sense to distrust wild creative interventions if they cannot prove themselves, hence the deviation of dogmatism, what I have called, quote, science's dogmatic shadow, unquote, becomes a real danger when faced with the possibility of scientific advances. This is the reason that the Big Bang Theory was resisted by many scientists when it was first theorized, and for good reason. But this good reason became dogmatic when this theoretical advance generated proof. 
Conversely, the fact that science develops according to creative interventions can generate an eclectic deviation, another shadow cast before the object rather than behind, where theorists neglect the principle of theoretical conservation and, without rigor, simply invent new and fringe conceptions. As early modernist scientific spiritualists did, for example, with the theory of ectoplasm. To be clear, both dogmatism and eclecticism in themselves are also and by definition anti-scientific, an eclipse instead of a shadow. Religious dogmatism is the antithesis of science since it is based solely on faith rather than reason. The initiation of the quote new sciences unquote during the European Enlightenment made this distinction clear despite its regional and historical limitations. But eclecticism is also anti-scientific since science is not an quote anything goes unquote theoretical practice defined by unbounded creativity and imagination. Rather, it is delimited by clear and stringent conceptions of truth procedures that can be proven in practice. Since Maoist reason is a form of scientific reasoning, the current and most advanced iteration of historical materialism, it can also generate these two erroneous modes of thinking, along with various admixtures, that undermine its deployment. The problem, however, is that the scientist is not always able to grasp when dogmatism and or eclecticism manifest. The dogmatist rarely believes they are dogmatic, the eclecticist most often denies the accusation. Indeed, charges of dogmatism and eclecticism can be mobilized by those guilty of these depredations, along with the requisite theoretical terms to preserve their errors. For example, dogmatic thinking generates an awareness of all the names of important concepts, as well as the appropriate citations so that calling others, quote, dogmatic, unquote, as well as, quote, idealist, unquote, anti-dialectical, unquote, etc., displaces the errors on others. The Maoist scientist is a subject embedded in the theoretical terrain of Maoism, that is the subject militantly dedicated to ensuring the truth procedure of Maoism manifests and develops. The Maoist scientist, if they want their work to matter, ought to be political cadre, the scientific practice as class revolution. But, like all scientists, to be embedded in a theoretical terrain means immersion within its vicissitudes and can result in a loss of perspective, due to the ways in which the dogmatic and eclectic modes of thinking are the deviating spawn of correct scientific reasoning. Hence, the significance of philosophical intervention, which is secondary but clarifying, and thus the critique of Maoist reason. In order to pursue such a critique, however, we need to examine the theoretical formations resulting from Maoism's complications. Anatomy of Maoist Reason Since I wrote Continuity and Rupture, there have been a number of developments within the milieu of Maoist reasoning that need to be charted. While some of these developments already existed at the time I wrote that book, and were taken into account when it was written, they have developed further since 2016. Other developments, some of which lurked implicitly in germ form in Continuity and Rupture's critique, have surfaced and become more acute. Eclecticism and dogmatism characterize many of these developments. First of all, there are the quote, post-Maoist unquote articulations of Maoist reason. While it might seem strange to include these tendencies within the broad category of Maoist reason, they are significant because they claim to be reasonable extensions of Maoism, logical accomplishments of the tradition that bears Mao's name. This category possesses both dogmatic and eclectic variants. The former is represented by the RCP USA and the post-RIM groups it has drawn into its orbit, i.e. the Communist Party of Iran, Marxist-Leninist-Maoist, which still claims to be Maoist, with its, quote, new synthesis, unquote, that locates its authoritative status on the personality cult of Bob Avakian. The latter was once best represented by the Kasama Project, but now that the Kasama Project has fallen apart in its eclectic pursuit of its pseudo-Bauduian post-Maoism, is more of a general tendency of formerly Maoist organizations and individuals that want to retain a vague appreciation of Maoism without accepting its scientific status. 
Next, there is, quote, Maoist Third Worldism, unquote, MTW, that exists primarily in the imperialist metropoles. This tendency holds that there is no substantial proletariat, or that its existence is relatively minor in so-called first world nations, due to the fact that the first world working class is dependent on the exploitation of the third world working class. Although MTW, by claiming that Maoist reason results in this third worldist analysis, often sets itself in opposition to other Maoist articulations, it still remains tied to the broad Maoist milieu because its organizations and individuals generally support Maoist-led people's wars. Thirdly, there is Marxism-Leninism-Maoism, MLM. Either upholding the process of theorization initiated by the Communist Party of Peru, PCP, and concretized by the Revolutionary Internationalist Movement, RIM, or the adjacent and sometimes intersecting processes of the people's wars in the Philippines, Turkey, and India, this tendency asserts that Maoism is the third stage of a revolutionary science. As the Maoism qual Maoism that I analyzed in Continuity and Rupture, this tendency is the most dominant expression of Maoist reason. It is noteworthy that the first tendency above and the fourth tendency below were initially closer to this baseline MLM. Fourthly, there is, quote, Marxism-Leninism-Maoism, principally Maoism, unquote, MLMPM. Basing itself primarily on the, quote, Gonzalo thought, unquote, of the PCP, this tendency upholds the People's War in Peru as the primary, if not sole, location of Maoist reason. Despite the PCP's participation in the RIM, MLMPM treats the latter as a rightist expression of the pure Maoism articulated by Gonzalo in the PCP. This expression of Maoist reason is often marked by dogmatism and its nearly uncritical application of, quote, Gonzaloism, unquote, to every social context. Indeed, this tendency emerged after the failure of the PCP to complete its revolution, and thus takes the term, quote, principally Maoist, unquote, to mean more than what it meant for the PCP an emphasis that Maoism was more than simply, quote, Mao Zedong thought, unquote, which would be codified in the Rim's claim that all non-Maoist variants of Marxism are revisionist, and instead to elevate the particularization of an early form of Maoism to the level of universality. The first fully-fledged articulation of this tendency is the Parti Communiste Francois, Marxism-Leninism-Maoism, and the small international groups it pulled into its orbit. Although many of the contemporary parties and groups now upholding MLMPM dislike the PCF-MLM, they do not deviate from the core theoretical claims this group has articulated on its website. Finally, there is a trend that admits that Maoism is a third stage of revolutionary science, but does not see the PCP, RIM, Philippines, or Indian sequences as qualifying for the generator of contemporary Maoism. I want to suggest that this trend is inconsequential because it ends up feeding into one of our four trends above when it comes to defining what Maoist reason is, and thus its various representatives will end up gravitating to one or the other above categories when it comes to thinking what Maoism is now. At best, it focuses primarily on what Marx, Lenin, and Mao contributed and treats the PCP RIM experience, as well as the Philippines and Indian sequences, as secondary curiosities. That is, it often ends up being a Marxism-Leninism-Maoism that seeks the synthesis in the works of these names rather than the later revolutionary processes that were involved in synthesizing the theoretical meaning of these names. At worst, it promotes an eclectic understanding of theoretical lineage. Since this trend pleads agnostic to the origin of this terrain, often treating it as auto-generated and the result of a process too complex to coherently map, it occasionally suggests pursuing other sources such as the Union of French Communist Marxist-Leninist, UCFML, in order to think Maoism's meaning. Although we should investigate all of the germinal tributaries from the anti-revisionist period, these faint glimmers of a possible Maoism from the closing moments of the Marxist-Leninist sequence do not provide us with much insight regarding the structure of Maoist reason due to the overriding agnosticism. 
In any case, it is my contention that the third category is Maoist reason, and that the other three are deviations over determined by dogmatism, eclecticism, or various admixtures of these two modes of thinking. This does not mean that the third category exists outside of such modes of thinking, only that its basis is not immediately undermined by them. By pursuing a rigorous critique of Maoist reason, we will discover how this category of Maoism is not only the scientific heir of the Marxist mantle, but how it best can steer clear of these modes of thinking that encourage revisionism. Chapter 2. Thinking Science Maoism claims to be the third stage of revolutionary science, the inheritor of historical materialism founded by Marx and Engels. As I argued in Continuity and Rupture, historical materialism is a scientific terrain, and I explained how and why it was a science as well as how we should understand the meaning of scientific development. Furthermore, in this ruthless criticism of all that exists, I demonstrated that Marxism's scientific aspect was essential to its theoretical meaning, and that to dispense with this qualification, that is, to claim that Marxism is not a science, is to dispense with Marxism's meaning altogether. I will not repeat those arguments here, though I will draw upon them when necessary. Unfortunately, the Marxist tradition has developed a number of errors when it comes to thinking of itself as a science. These errors have been repeated in every moment of its development, including Maoism. The largest error is, as noted above, dispensing with the qualification of science altogether, but, as I already suggested for reasons argued elsewhere, this would also dispense with its theoretical significance since it was conceptualized and thus brought into being as theory as a science. The error that concerns us here, since it finds its way into contemporary Maoist reason, is the inability to think the conceptual meaning of science despite consistently proclaiming the name of science. That is, there is a pattern of Marxists who adhere to the notion that historical materialism is a science, and who openly embrace this notion, but seemingly have no idea what it means to call something a science due to the way they understand theory and practice. Contemporary Maoists have often fallen into this same pattern. Again, we are faced with the problem of thinking thought. In this case, the problem concerns the fundamental premise of the theoretical terrain as a whole, that it is a scientific terrain, that it generates truth in a manner that is generically identical to other scientific terrains. Once we recognize that science possesses a strong purchase on what it means to call something quote true unquote and quote correct unquote, however, the error is to use the name of science as a magical wand, that is, in an anti-scientific manner, to wave away all criticism as if we are conjuring the truth into being. Reactionaries do this all the time. They claim their positions are quote scientific unquote, when all they are doing is repeating ideological claims, embarking on various sequences of pseudoscience to confuse their audience. Unfortunately, Marxism has a history of treating science in the same anti-scientific manner, and this history often finds its way into Maoist expression. For example, it is extremely common for those who are the most vocal in repeating the claim that Marxism is a science to, quote, demonstrate, unquote, that positions practices are correct or incorrect by referring to a passage in one or other classical theoretical text of the science. But to assert the status of science is not an argument from authority. The biologist does not prove the scientific worth of a hypothesis by quoting Darwin, though the process in which Darwin was involved provides the foundational axioms for scientific investigation and intervention. Scientism, where science is accorded the status of religion with sacred texts and prophets, is not scientific. To claim that Marxism is a science requires a much more rigorous approach to theory than a rhetorical ploy of branding statements and proclamations with the name, quote, science, unquote. The distance between this name, branding, and the concept of science, what it means for something to be scientific, widens every time the former is enunciated for merely polemical reasons. Indeed, the rhetorical use of the term, quote, science, unquote, is only rivaled within the Marxist terrain by the rhetorical use of the term, quote, dialectics, unquote. 
we should know that simply because someone calls something dialectical does not make this something dialectical. Dialectics means something specific, and the same can be said for science. We are required to think what dialectics and science mean and require of us as Marxists so that we can demonstrate that, quote, ruthless criticism of all that exists, unquote, instead of falling back on rhetorical platitudes. In today's Maoist milieu, various militants will make claims such as, quote, criticism is a gift, unquote, and, quote, many great Marxist texts were polemics, unquote. These claims are generally correct, but, as discussed at the beginning of this intervention, they are often made to disguise the failure to produce useful criticisms. For example, much of the work found on the U.S. Maoist website Struggle Sessions is paradigmatic of the worst forms of criticism and the polemic within the Marxist tradition, misrepresentation, a litany of quotes from classical texts used as arguments from authority, clever rhetoric, fetishism of past people's wars. Numerous criticisms are only gifts insofar as they teach us how not to think. Let us recall that Mao also saw the criticism of reactionaries as its own kind of quote, gift, unquote, because since, quote, to be attacked by the enemy is not a bad thing, unquote, it provided the opportunity of surgical counter-propaganda. To therefore be ordered to accept malign criticism as a comradely gift by supposed comrades who call other Maoists, quote, revisionists, unquote, for not accepting their rhetorical assertions, demonstrates a poor understanding of what Maoist criticism should be and what Mao meant by calling criticism a gift. Similarly, while it is true that many great theoretical texts were also polemics, this does not mean that all polemics are great theoretical texts. For example, there is a difference between Lenin's polemics against Kautsky and what he rigorously established through them in an October League polemical complaint about the Revolutionary Union in the 1970s. A polemic is judged by its content, not its form. A correct understanding of dialectics and science would grasp the distinction between substance and appearance. In any case, there is a reason that Marx and Engels claimed that historical materialism was a science, just as there was a reason that successive theoreticians used this term and demonstrated the scientific efficacy of their work. They took this aspect of the theory seriously and did not relegate it to a rhetorical slogan. We undermine the meaning of our theoretical terrain when we fail to grasp its meaning as a science, using the name in place of the concept. The Laboratory The laboratory of Marxism is class struggle, and its scientists are the militants engaged in this laboratory. But these militants do not develop the science just as they please, as Marx wrote in the 18th Brumaire, but in circumstances directly encountered from the past. That is, just as scientists working in other disciplines do not function to reinvent their scientific terrains as they see fit, but in fact, unless they deviate into the realm of pseudoscience, work according to the truth procedures already established. The best Marxist scientist works within the constraints developed by the science as a whole. Every science possesses historical constraints. That is the axioms established by previous scientific labor and struggle. For Marxism as it has developed to date, and as I have argued rigorously elsewhere, these constraints are determined by the following instruments, the vanguard party, the mass line, cultural revolution, and protracted people's war. It is not enough to recognize the constraints and what the practice of Marxism within the laboratory of class struggle has brought into being to date. The point is to practice the science according to the truth procedure so far, utilizing the instruments this procedure has generated in line with the science object. That is, just as the object of physics is to demystify the physical structure of reality, the object of historical materialism is to demystify history and society, which includes not only understanding class struggle, but making revolution. Moreover, scientists dedicated to other theoretical terrain should not walk into their laboratory so that they can quote previous scientists at their instruments of investigation or refuse to use these instruments to develop further and successive theories. 
nor should they enter their laboratory with the aim of ignoring the instruments and theoretical developments already established, inventing new and groundless theories simply because they sound more interesting than what the science already possesses. Scientific development emerges from the rigorous process of a scientific method and not from dogmatism or eclecticism. The scientists who are left behind in their respective fields are those who fail to recognize theoretical transformation when it is upon them, i.e. all those scientists who refuse to accept the Big Bang Theory because it did not accord to the way they chose to understand pre-established concepts. Just as scientists who drift into the weird penumbra of their fields are rightly seen as fringe scientists. Keeping in mind that dogmatism and eclecticism are only formally distant, we should also recognize that eclectic fringe theories are often fabricated by dogmatists looking for alternate theories to explain phenomena that threatens tradition, i.e. those who initially rejected the Big Bang Theory in favor of some form of constant continuum tried to explain the phenomena that the Big Bang Theory accounted for with a stranger and unwieldy theory of quote little bangs unquote. We find the same mixture of dogmatism and eclecticism with revisionists who, refusing to accept that China is no longer socialist, either accept or fabricate confused theories about market socialism so as to preserve the faith in, quote, actually existing socialism, unquote. Thus, for historical materialism to develop as a science requires that its practitioners also understand what it means to practice it as a science. Since this practice functions within class revolution according to the instruments mentioned above to fail in the rigor required means to fail in comprehending and demystifying its object, science and history, which also means to fail in making revolution. Those sequences in science which have been successful in pushing it further are those where the scientists have been organized and dedicated to the theoretical rigor that every science demands. Those that have failed have either rejected the very concept of this theoretical rigor, which is why all forms of spontaneism, like a self-proclaimed scientist walking to a laboratory and making up practices and concepts on the spot, have produced nothing meaningful. Or accept the idea of scientific rigor, but also misunderstand its practice as a religious dedication to the idea of science. The reason Marxists uphold the concept of the vanguard party is because we know that the most developed elements of the masses, those with theoretical acumen, are like the trained scientists in other scientific disciplines who possess the wherewithal to consciously pursue the science. But Maoist reason provides us with a further insight. The mass line tells us that everyone from the exploited masses who are conscious of their exploitation are capable of becoming scientists and that trained scientists can learn from them, distilling their ideas as the untrained elements of the masses also learn through contact with the advanced elements to become scientists. Other scientific disciplines, due to the prevalence of bourgeois ideology that drives a wedge between mental and manual labor, obscure the truth that knowledge is made by the masses and not by those who had the privilege of receiving the requisite training. Indeed, historical materialism teaches us that the truths established by every science are the result of multiple and often invisible processes in which the exploited and oppressed masses as a whole are involved. For example, the modern conception of vaccination, though made precise through the implementation of the theory of natural selection, would not have been possible without the intervention of the knowledge of African slaves. Cotton Mather learned of smallpox inculcation from his slave, Onesimus. Hence, the claim made during the Cultural Revolution, which is foundational for a Maoist understanding of science, that it is necessary to be both read and expert. We have nothing to lose by unleashing the creativity of the revolutionary masses, Rather, our expertise can be expanded by this creativity when it is articulated within the bounds of the science. The balancing of the two terms, red and expert, is important. On the one hand, as the Chinese revolution that would generate Maoism demonstrated, expertise is not enough. Theoreticians of all kinds can become divorced from the masses. Marxist theoreticians who engage in, quote, book worship, unquote, of the expert can become a new bourgeoisie. On the other hand, being read without being expert, and thus allowing the former to transform understanding of the latter, is to fail to rise to the level of science. 
While it is indeed the case that a communist promoting something like astrology would be someone who is read but not expert, and thus not truly, quote, read, unquote, since theoretical expertise is necessary, it is also the case that a dogmatist who promotes a kind of read expertise that ignores the rigorous demands of scientific practice would be another example of this error. Dogmatism is not expertise, and dogmatic articulations of Marxism are about as useful as the spiritual dogma of the astrologist. Falsifiability In The Logic of Scientific Discovery, Karl Popper writes that in order for a theory to be scientific, quote, it must be possible for its empirical scientific system to be refuted by experience, unquote. In other words, according to Popper, the most significant test for a theory's scientific status is whether it can be submitted to an actual test where it can possibly be proved false. The concept of falsifiability clearly applies to simple material facts. If I tell you the door is locked, for example, you have the ability to prove my truth claim incorrect by trying to open said door. What I have claimed is thus submitted to empirical examination because it can be tested and thus judged either true or false. Theories that can never possibly be proven false also can never be proven true, and this is why religious claims such as, quote, God exists, unquote, concern faith rather than science sense, as those who employ the argument from ignorance fallacy know very well, one cannot prove that God does not exist. But inversely, because the existence of God remains non-falsifiable, one cannot prove empirically that God does exist. Hence, theories that systematize claims about the existence of God, miracles, astrology, haunted houses, etc. are non-scientific. Of course, as I have discussed elsewhere, Popper was an anti-communist who also claimed that the concept of falsifiability excluded Marx's theory from the realm of science. That is, based on a very simplistic understanding of Marxism's own claims to scientific status, Popper read Marxism as some kind of cargo cult conspiracy theory that could always account for everything and thus never be proven wrong. Hence, it could not be submitted to the rigorous testing that made science science. But as I wrote in this ruthless criticism of all that exists, Popper unintentionally rendered a small service to Marxism thanks to his unscientific grasp of social categories. His conceptualization of falsifiability did not exclude historical materialism from the privileged domain of the sciences, but, because he was too lazy to grasp Marxism as a historical process, cinched its inclusion. Historical materialism can indeed lay claim to falsifiability, and its inverse, quote, testability, unquote, as one of its criteria for scientific veracity. Revolutions are the crucibles in which the unfolding theoretical terrain is tested, and where its hypotheses can be possibly rendered false. And this is how we judge its development as a discrete science. To give the devil his due, however, Popper's straw-person version of Marxism was in fact a version that has haunted historical materialism since its emergence and continues to manifest right up to the Maoist sequence. That is, the dogmatic and blasé assertion that Marxism is a science, criticized in the first section of this chapter, has contributed to this misapprehension. When Marxism becomes a weird panacea that can speak for all the sciences, and not just about these sciences' connections to Marxism, does deal with social and historical relations, does distort historical materialism into a non-falsifiable religious theory. When Marxists declare that the theory of the Big Bang is wrong because of, quote, dialectical materialism, unquote, my favorite example, typified by the Trotskyist international Marxist tendency, and then attempt to use Marxism as a deep science of the life, the universe, and everything they are demonstrating this distorted form of Marxism that Popper could easily exclude. Maoists who are unclear about what science is, but know that historical materialism is a science, make similar religious pronouncements. X is scientific because the Marxist tradition said so. Everything can be accounted for and explained without the worry of testability. Modern revisionism, in fact, is quite deft in its defiance of falsifiability. China's, quote, market socialism, unquote, can always be united with Marxism as a whole because there is nothing that can falsify its claim to being socialist. 
The empirical evidence can be tailored according to well-chosen quotes and ad hoc explanations so that it is always socialist, regardless of how it has been demonstrated false on the score, according to what Marxism actually means, according to an eclecto-dogmatic application of the quote science unquote of historical materialism. Indeed, the fact that Marxism as a scientific totality can provide the tools to falsify these revisionist claims, as the anti-revisionist tradition has historically demonstrated, should clearly prove that Marxism does possess the kind of scientific rigor that Popper crudely denied. Just as Einstein waited on a total solar eclipse to either prove his theory right or wrong, we wait upon these objective circumstances that can do the same for Marxism. We have thus discovered that so far it is only what Marxism has established in the course of its development that actually succeeds in bringing us closer to communism. We have also discovered the limitations of these revolutions that prevent communism from being consummated and, in the repeatability of the parts of each sequence, what more needs to be discovered. The Maoist sequence has currently theorized, from what the Chinese Revolution replicated from the Russian Revolution, and the mistakes it did not repeat so as to push the revolution further, concepts distilled from the Cultural Revolution. The wager is that these concepts are necessary for creating the next world historical revolution and transgressing the limits of the previous sequence. Reaching the point where the theory can possibly be falsified, where socialism is established, and we enter it fully aware that class struggle persists within socialism, is our solar eclipse. Investigating alternative approaches to making socialist revolution is also part of the falsifiability. Each time we examine movements that break from the sequence of revolutionary science, we examine them to see if they can falsify what we claim has been established by world historical revolutions. We should not investigate these movements dogmatically, attacking them as heretical simply because they are not Marxist or not Maoist, but take them seriously. Mao claimed that rebellion is justified and thus we should recognize the multiple rebellions against capitalism, even when they're dressed in costumes different from ours. If we believe that it is better to make communist revolution, then we should care about these other approaches, examining them to see if they falsify our theoretical claims. If they could do so, then our claim to science would be wrong, but this would not be a bad thing because what we want, more than anything else, is communism. But nothing so far has falsified revolutionary science currently codified as Marxism, Leninism, Maoism. First of all, we must recognize those who also claim the post-Leninist mantle of revolutionary science, Trotskyists and Hojaists. Trotskyists do not have a revolution to call their own, despite their weird attempts to claim that the Bolshevik revolution was led by Trotsky, and the theory of permanent revolution has produced nothing but multiple fourth international sects. Hojaists rely on a revolution that was part of the Leninist sequence, an echo of the Stalin period of the Russian Revolution, and in their attempt to preserve the purity of the anti-revisionist Marxist-Leninist sequence, decrying the Cultural Revolution, have produced nothing since. Secondly, there are the spontaneous and parliamentary theories of making socialism that, if correct, would falsify all iterations of Marxism that proceeded down the Leninist route. Conversely, these theories have failed the test of falsifiability because all such attempts to make revolution have not been able to replicate, let alone go further, the successes of Marxism-Leninism. Spontaneous theories, whether they are traditional workerist theories of self-organization or postmodernist variants, have resulted only in limited rebellions that have done very little to crack the edifice of the bourgeois state. The Spanish Civil War was the furthest their traditional anarchist method of making revolution has gone, and it is notable that, though this heroic attempt should be celebrated, because of its inability to conceptualize state power in a Leninist sense, even Duraty realized too late the necessity of establishing state power. The experience of the EZLN in the 1990s was another high point of an alternative to the Leninist route of seizing power, and yet, though the legacy and significance of the Zapatistas should be celebrated, 
This armed popular movement refused to develop into a people's war aimed at wresting power away from the Mexican ruling class because of its suspicion at the time of power. To the Zapatistas, we can add the fetishization of the PKK and Rojava that has more recently manifested. Meanwhile, even those revolutions within the Leninist sequence of the science, Cuba, Korea, Vietnam, Zimbabwe, China, etc., that did not produce another world historical revolution, many of which would fall along with the Soviet Union or persist as revisionist siege states, could replicate the basic successes of the Bolshevik Revolution. The fact that they either fell with the Soviet Union or continued as relics of Marxism-Leninism simply demonstrates that they did not go further by following what the most radical aspects of the Chinese Revolution unlocked, i.e. the sequence we call Maoism. Contemporary China is a testament to this failure since, following the failure to carry the revolutionary line forward, it went backwards. Parliamentary approaches to making socialism are likewise falsified. Our conception of revisionism, in fact, begins with the SPD, under the guidance of Bernstein and Kautsky, taking the parliamentary road and capitulating to fascism. This approach was falsified whereas the road taken by the Bolsheviks in the same period passed the test of falsifiability. But the greatest exemplar of the parliamentary road was its only real heroic iteration that, in contradiction to the SPD's cowardly capitulation, is worth studying. The democratic election of Salvador Allende's Unidad Popular in Chile in 1970. Allende's political party faithfully followed the road of making revolution through parliamentary means, what at that time could be characterized as the, quote, peaceful road to socialism, unquote. There was no insurrection or people's war, but a popular election where a socialist government was overwhelmingly and enthusiastically voted into power. On the one hand, we should recognize this popular election as a victory for socialist rebellion because it proved that socialism was indeed popular and that, regardless of what bourgeois advocates of, quote, democracy, unquote, claim, the masses will cast their vote for socialism if they are permitted to do so. On the other hand, Allende's election proves decisively that the parliamentary road to socialism is impossible. Without a revolution that is built in its own institutions to smash the old state and replace it with a dictatorship of the proletariat, within three years there was a coup, the old army remained untouched, as did all the other ruling class institutions. These were the apparatuses that, because they were not defeated in a revolution, were allowed to persist and plot the demise of a victory gained only from the ballot box. Allende was the most faithful and radical subject of the peaceful road to socialism, and regardless of his heroism which should be celebrated, the reason that he failed was because he could not follow the path that would allow him to repeat the successes of the Bolshevik Revolution. Therefore, it has been demonstrated historically that every time attempts to make revolution have not followed the path established by Marxism to date, by either repeating the lines of failed attempts that have been consistently proven to fail, or by trying something new, which is usually just a rehashing of these old attempts, they have proven false, none succeeding in replicating the successes that the Marxist sequence to date has achieved, let alone overcoming the failures these sequences met. Indeed, through falsifiability, we recognize the limits of even these successful attempts and what has caused them to fail, leading us to hypotheses that now need to be subordinated to the same rigorous appreciation. As Maoists, though, we must of course extend the same rigor to our current claims. So far we know only this about our thesis, that we can get as far as the last world historical revolution in China, if, like the Chinese revolution did with the Russian, we replicate its sequences and also learn from its errors. We have achieved a series of hypotheses from this sequence that can guide us in making the next revolutionary sequence, but only if we do not fall into dogmatism, eclecticism, or a mixture of these two errors. The danger is to take what has been established and treat it unscientifically, even when we speak the name of, quote, science, unquote, and fail to think Maoist reason according to a concrete analysis of concrete situations. Scientific Development 
By claiming that revolutionary science develops according to stages, and stages that are justified according to world historical revolutions, we are repeating another important qualification that makes a theory scientific. That scientific demystification, that which explains natural phenomena according to natural causes, is also open to the future. Science does not establish static truth claims that are closed but are necessarily incomplete or procedural. In every science, new discoveries open to the potential of newer ones, and the broad scientific fields are never closed. Scientists stand on the proverbial shoulders of other scientists, using the experience of the past to attempt to establish insights for the future. Science develops and, if Marxism is a science, it also develops. This is why those who seek to locate a pure Marxism prior to Mao and Lenin are no longer engaged in the scientific thinking of historical materialism, but instead are engaged in a form of religious thinking. In order to understand what it means to think of historical materialism as a revolutionary science that has developed over time and will develop further, we need to engage in second-order thinking that is not necessarily found in Marx and Engels, who are laboring primarily to establish the foundation of the science of history and society, the science of revolution. I write, quote, not necessarily, unquote, because while they did not write out a full conception of the future development of their science, how could they when they were laying the groundwork and such a conception of scientific development would require a crystal ball? They still understood the general notion. As such, they constantly noted the limitations of history and what contemporary history presented them with and how they could solve only those questions given to them by the past and the present. Thus, the problematic of scientific development becomes a second-order question because it is best appreciated if we look at how the development of all fields that can properly be called science are understood. Hence, if Marxism is a science and not a theology, or ontology in the old philosophical sense, then it should invince the same patterns of development demonstrated by every other proper science. Thinking such patterns of development is a philosophical exercise, and being second-order does not affect the deployment of revolutionary science any more than it affects the deployment of physics or biology. All it does is bring clarity to our understanding of Marxism as a science, just as it brings clarity to other fields of science. Most importantly, it helps prove that Marxism is scientific, a qualification that cannot be proved by simply citing multiple quotes that merely assert this fact as a truism. Something is not a science just because it is claimed. Such an understanding of the proof of Marx's scientific development, as well as the development of other sciences, proceeds through the clearest philosophical logic we possess to date, and the logic that Marx and Engels revealed and championed, the logic of dialectical materialism. In continuity and rupture, therefore, I attempted to explain the scientific development of revolutionary science that resulted in Maoism through the dialectic from which the book took its name, quote, continuity rupture, unquote. To clear up some confusion as to why I utilize this dialectic to explain the unfolding of revolutionary science, aside from borrowing terms that were at the time in operation within the international communist movement, most notably in the Afghans' response to the RCP-USA and the Indians' discussion of the Maoist party, was because it was a dialectical way of looking at what important works in the philosophy of science, the work of Bachelard and the work of Kuhn, had written about scientific development. They had both demonstrated how scientific fields develop according to different stages of thought, and admittedly Kuhn, who was a physicist as well as a philosopher, had had done so in a much clearer manner than Bachelard. Hence, far from being an addition to the theory of Marxism-Leninism-Maoism, and thus some kind of, quote, doctrine, unquote, the conception of continuity rupture was a way in which to prove against multiple claims to the contrary, that historical materialism was a science because it also developed in the way Kuhn had described, that Maoism was the name given to its most contemporary development, and that its development was extremely vital. Philosophically and dialectically speaking, I feel the relation of continuity rupture is more accurate than Kuhn's use of, quote, paradigm shift, unquote, because it explains not only the fact of successive and higher stages of development, 
A higher stage is by definition a rupture, since if there was no breaking from a previous stage, it would be just the same stage. And that these successive stages were part of a whole. If there was no underlying continuity, there would be no unified field we could call revolutionary science, just disconnected insights. Even still, this is philosophical and not theoretical language designed to clarify the developments of a theoretical terrain. In any case, the point here is that if we think Marxism is a science, and we understand a scientific terrain as a terrain in development and open to the future, then we must understand what it means to be in development and how precisely it is open to the future if we are to think Maoism as part of this scientific totality. Uphold scientific reason. The claim that historical materialism is a science, and that Maoism is the name for the current conjecture of this science, is important to maintain and understand because this is what makes the Marxist theoretical trajectory more meaningful than other theoretical trajectories. The problem, however, is that since Marx and Engels, there has been very little examination of what this scientific claim means, what makes historical materialism a science in the first place, and why its pursuit results in Maoism. I tried to think the meaning of this science and its development and continuity and rupture, and here I have further examined its meaning, but this exercise in thought still encounters the limit of the theological application of Marxism that masquerades as science while refusing to think the meaning of science. The fact that Marx and Engels declared their theory as the initiation of the science of history slash society requires that Marxists who care about what Marx and Engels were claiming to establish assert their fidelity to revolutionary science. But this does not mean that such an assertion is meaningful simply because it was proclaimed. That is, the strength of Marx and Engels' claim that historical materialism is scientific field is located in the content of this claim and not the claim itself. After all, I could declare any form of thought, quote, scientific, unquote, merely to stamp it with a name that possesses a particular level of knowledge authority in this day and age, but this would not guarantee that such thought was indeed scientific. Occultists and hucksters have indeed declared a variety of magical thinking scientific, i.e. astrology is older than science, but we know that such declarations are meaningless because this kind of occult thinking associated with science does not accord to the definition of the latter. Unfortunately, though, there is a history of self-proclaimed Marxists treating historical materialism as a new form of magical thought and then stamping this magical thought with the label of science because historical materialism was indeed proclaimed as science by its principal theorists. Concepts that have been developed through various scientific sequences have been reduced to spells and mantras that, torn from their conceptual context, serve as talismans to banish the quote, Marxist unquote, sorcerer refuses to think. Revisionism, rightism, liquidationism, opportunism. But if Marxism is a science, and Maoism is its most contemporary conjectural nominalization, then we cannot undermine its meaning as a science. We need to think its content as scientific, with the rigor its historical categories deserve, and refuse all attempts to reduce it to lazy magical thinking. In order to do so, we not only have to examine what it means for the historical development of Marxism to be counted as a science, as I have indicated in this chapter, but understand the emergence of its current articulation, Maoism, and what this emergence tells us about how, like any science, it is open to the future. Chapter 3, The Maoist Point of Origin I want to argue that we ought to be unequivocal in asserting that the point of origin for Marxism-Leninism-Maoism is found in the sequence begun by the PCP and consummated by the RIM. Anything else did not generate Maoism as Maoism, what I have called Maoism qua Maoism, and was only a prefiguration to or adjacent of revolutionary science. The prefigurative aspect encompasses a variety of theories and theorists. One, anti-revisionist Marxism-Leninisms that occasionally use the name of Maoism, often meaning Mao Zedong thought. Two, early attempts to claim Marxism-Leninism-Maoism that were still indistinguishable from Marxism-Leninism and were oftentimes eclectic. 
Three, theories and theorists who did not necessarily use the term Maoism, but that provided insights that predicted significant aspects of Marxism, Leninism, Maoism. The adjacent aspect refers to those theories and theorists that were claiming Maoism simultaneous to the PCP rim sequence, and thus influenced the sequence during and after its existence, only to be also influenced by it later on. One, the theory that emerged over the fragmented people's wars in India, leading up to the foundation of the Communist Party of India Maoist. Two, the theory that resulted from the Long People's War led by the Communist Party Philippines. We will examine these prefigurations and adjacents, followed by the argument as to why the PCP rim sequence is the generator of Maoism qua Maoism in the successive sections of this chapter, but for now, let us discuss the importance of origins. Why does the grounding of Marxism, Leninism, Maoism in an unequivocal origin matter? Most importantly, because origins matter to any theory that speaks in the name of science, and those who oppose the totalizing aspect of revolutionary science have made patently clear. Indeed, Foucault's opposition to scientific discourses, particularly Marxist discourse, has proceeded according to an appreciation of a genealogical method that, unlike science, quote, opposes itself to the search for origins, unquote. Scientific investigation seeks to ground itself in an Archimedean point, establish originary foundations, and trace out meaning according to this point and its foundations. This is precisely the problem according to Foucault. Quote, because it is an attempt to capture the exact essence of things, their purest possibilities, and their carefully protected identities, because this search assumes the existence of immobile forms that precede the external world of accident and succession. This search is directed to, quote, that which was already there, unquote, the image of a primordial truth fully adequate to its nature, and it necessitates the removal of every mask to ultimately disclose an original identity. However, if the genealogist refuses to extend his faith in metaphysics, if he listens to history, if he finds that there is, quote, something altogether different, unquote, behind things, not a timeless and essential secret, but the secret that they have no essence or that their essence was fabricated in a piecemeal fashion from alien forms. Examining the history of reason, he learns that it was born in an altogether, quote, reasonable, unquote, fashion from chance, devotion to truth and the precision of scientific methods, arose from the passion of scholars, their reciprocal hatred, their fanatical and unending discussions, and their spirit of competition the personal conflicts that slowly forged the weapons of reason, unquote. In the above assessment, scientific theory is no more or less significant than any other kind of theory, though its claims to veracity and reason make it more murderous. Sciences establish points of origin to provide themselves with meaning. Reason is not aimless nor ahistorical. For Foucault and those who follow in his footsteps, such claims are no more meaningful than religion. But we are not Foucault and we reject this anti-scientific assessment of reality. There's no point here in outlining why Foucault's position is erroneous, aside from pointing out that science does establish truths and to think otherwise is akin to being a six-day creationist. Rather, I have quoted him at length to indicate why, in opposition to his anti-scientific mysticism, understanding the point of origin is necessary for precisely what Foucauldian theories reject. Moreover, it is important to point out that while Maoism prides itself on rejecting postmodernism, rejecting a point of scientific origin runs dangerously close to saying something similar to what postmodern thinkers such as Foucault uphold. A scientific theoretical terrain necessarily possesses points of origin that determine it as scientific, it would be strange to pretend otherwise. I have already established why Marxism, Leninism, Maoism is scientific, Foucault be damned, just as I have previously established why it is important to understand revolutionary science as science. Let's not waste our time any further with this postmodern nonsense, beyond what it establishes contrapuntally. A theoretical terrain that calls itself, quote, scientific, unquote, must care about origins. After the world historical revolution in China that first gives us the name of Maoism, it was necessary to figure out the point where the name became more than a notion, 
that it became a concept, and thus, like, quote, Marxism, unquote, and, quote, Leninism, unquote, referred to universal aspects that thus fell into the category of science. The name thus first emerged as a notion that, linked to the Chinese Revolution, and especially in the Sino-Soviet split, marked fidelity to anti-revisionist Marxism-Leninism, Mao Zedong thought, before, after the Chinese Revolution itself fell to revisionism, later being developed into a scientific conceptualization, Marxism-Leninism-Maoism. In Continuity and Rupture, I discuss the process by which a notion becomes a concept. 1. Quote, a world historical revolution provides the origin point of any significant ruptural theoretical development. Unquote. 2. Quote, the assessment of the theoretical practice behind a world revolution begins the process of developing a theoretical terrain, based on what theoretical insights, in the light of the revolution, are universally applicable. Unquote. And three, quote, the new theoretical terrain emerges when the struggle passes beyond the limits of the previous terrain and begins to produce a new stage of struggles according to this assessment, synthesis, and its decision of universality, unquote. I will not repeat the arguments I made in that book for this sequence, though the reader is encouraged to pursue them at their leisure. The point is that amongst the broad Maoist camp there is general agreement that what we now call, quote, Maoism, unquote, was not what was given that name during the Chinese Revolution, but that something else happened in the period between the death of Mao and the contemporary conjuncture that generated Maoism. If we agree that origins are important, and we must, for we also do not pretend that the origin of Marxism is anterior to Marx and Engels, regardless of the multiple utopian socialisms and dialectical philosophical traditions that would have influenced them, and that origins do indeed provide foundational meaning, then we must be able to provide a decisive answer regarding the origins of Maoism qua Maoism. When and where precisely did Maoism emerge as Maoism? If we cannot answer this question, then we cannot adequately say what Maoism is, after all. Locating its origin in different places will provide it with a different meaning. Nor can we accept a mythology of multiple lines of descent. Although we can accept, as aforementioned, that there are prefigurations and adjacent traditions, this is not to say that there are multiple lines of origin that all possess the same status. Rather, these prefigurations slash adjacents only makes sense as such in retrospect once we ground Maoism in a specific origin and then look back around at other attempts slash traditions. For example, it was only after the Darwinian paradigm shift in biology established itself that later biologists could look at the work of scientists such as Lamarck and see the prefigurations to natural selection and use aspects of his work to think Darwinism. But, and here's the key, no one would suggest that the origin of the Darwinian sequence in biological science was located in Lamarck. This analogy of biology science is in fact more apt when we think the problematic of origins and theoretical lines of descent. That is, while it is correct to recognize that there is a complexity of lines of descent that inform a given phenomenon, it is also erroneous to use this complexity to reject the scientific search for origins. We cannot accept the mythology of multiple lines of descent that are all equal because that would be analogical to our biologists declaring that there were multiple lines of evolutionary emergence, numerous points around the globe where the human species evolved independently. Such a position is scientifically incoherent because it would suggest that humans are not a single species, but a variety of distinctly evolved species. As should be obvious, this way of thinking humanity's emergence not only assumes the accident of natural selection that generated the human species was repeated, which makes sense only if a god or gods was running an experiment that worked and, like any good scientist, was able to repeat the results, but divides humans into a set of subspecies, the cornerstone of racist pseudoscience. None of this is to say that we have precisely grasped the univocal nature of human evolutionary emergence, because it still seems to be under debate, which is why we must part ways with this analogy. In the case of the emergence of a theoretical terrain, which is far easier to trace than human prehistory and not a problem of biology, we can figure out the point of origin. 
In the case of Maoism qua Maoism, this origin can only be the sequence form between the PCP and the RIM, and definitely not the former without the latter, as one group claiming the name quote Maoism unquote wants to assert, but in order to grasp this in its totality we must discuss the prefigurations and adjacents. These prefigurations and adjacents are not separate lines of descent, but only make sense as prefigurations and adjacents in reference to the singular line of descent, as we shall examine. Prefigurations As noted above, theoretical and philosophical work that prefigured aspects of Marxism, Leninism, and Maoism can only be understood as prefigurations in retrospect. That is, the establishment of a science, and in particular a scientific development, sheds light on a variety of pre-existing concepts that would not have been as meaningful otherwise. If Maoism had never come about, then the theoretical-slash-philosophical work that we see now as prefiguring it, i.e. pointing to it, would have pointed nowhere and be judged as signposts directing us towards a useless theoretical terrain. In the terrain of literature, Borges once claimed that Kafka defined his precursors. The literary significance of Kafka was so singular that, quote, if Kafka had never written a line, we would not perceive this quality, the so-called Kafka-esque, in other words, it would not exist, unquote. Similarly, if Mao and Maoism did not exist in the singular theoretical way that they exist, then we would not be able to locate meaningful prefigurations. And for those who do not appreciate this literary analogy, I reiterate the point I made about Lamarck and Darwinism in the previous section. The history of scientific theoretical terrains is also filled with examples of precursors that are given new meaning after a paradigm shift, or epistemistic rupture within a given terrain. Those who have been skeptical about my claim that the PCP-RIM sequence is the prime generator of Marxism, Leninism, Maoism have pointed out that my reference to a constellation of prefiguring theories-slash-philosophies seems to undermine this claim. But the main claim is only undermined if we treat a constellation of prefigurations as meaningful outside of how they are given meaning after the advent of Marxism, Leninism, Maoism. If this advent had not taken place, if the theoretical sequence of Maoism was not founded as Maoism, then we would not have a complex history of precursors to examine because they would prefigure nothing but a dead end. We can thus treat the whole of the new communist movement as producing, to greater or lesser degrees, prefigurative moments of Maoism. Whether we are speaking of insights developed by the Revolutionary Union, the Revolutionary Communist League of Britain, and Lut, Gauch Proletarienne, the Workers' Communist Party, the Maoist International Movement, and others, we find a wealth of theoretical labor that, now understood as pointing towards MLM, can be mined in retrospect but only through the lens of MLM. Moreover, there were some attempts within the new communist movement to assert the veracity of Maoism as a third stage of revolutionary science. For example, the UCFML, which counted Elaine Badu and Sylvain Lazarus as its members, was a paradigm example of an early attempt at founding Marxism-Leninism-Maoism. The problem with treating such attempts as anything more than interesting prefigurations, however, is that they result in eclectic rather than programmatic definitions of Maoism, were barely indistinguishable from Marxism-Leninism, and lacked the basis of class struggle, that is the scientific practice, to be anything more than errant theorizations. Indeed, the UCFML was a minor trend within the French anti-revisionist movement, far less important in contemporary Maoism in that country than the gauch proletarian, and in any case, beyond describing momentumist to the term, quote, Marxism-Leninism-Maoism, unquote, did not outline the universality of Maoism beyond the universality of Marxism-Leninism. Finally, elements of the earlier New Left can be similarly examined for prefigurative notions, as can the wealth of anti-colonial theory of Fanon, Nkrumah, Babu, and others. We know that all of these movements and thinkers were engaging with concepts wagered by Mao in the Chinese Revolution. 
since Maoism treats this revolution as the most advanced world historical revolution to date, then it must also engage with all attempts to grasp its sequence, as premature as some of these might have been. There's an entire constellation of theories and theorists who did not use the term Maoism, but still provided insights that would prefigure significant aspects of Marxism-Leninism-Maoism. It may be the case that some of these prefigurative elements are more important than others. And it seems to be the case that we should treat the insights of the largest and most revolutionary organizations of the new communist movement with more weight than those more distant from the name Maoism. I have not pursued the task of investigating these prefigurative elements with the intention of ranking their importance in relation to Maoism qua Maoism to date. I have simply named them when I was speaking of glimmers, prefigurations, signposts, we now know points to the advent of Maoism. To be clear, I have never argued for an ecumenical attitude towards this large constellation of prefigurations, though it may have seemed so because of the offhanded way in which I have mentioned them. If we were to pursue a task of itemizing and ranking the glimmers within this constellation, so as to see what theories and theorists possess the most prefigurative importance, then the only way to do so would be to accept a singular origin point where Maoism was generated as Maoism and use that as a measure for the salience of any other prefigurative glimmer. Without such a measure, which I have argued is the PCP rim sequence, we cannot even begin to think through the vast array of pre-Maoist theory. To grasp this sequence, moreover, is also to understand the past through the present conjuncture, to be able to make a concrete analysis of the concrete situation of our theoretical history. This task, which is the task of historical materialism, requires Archimedean points of origin, one for every moment of continuity rupture in the unfolding of the science. Adjacence Far more important to the foundation of contemporary Maoism than the prefigurative theories and theorists are those that I have called adjacents. These are revolutionary movements that resulted in people's wars that are still being waged today and, though using the term Maoism, were not necessarily generated by the PCP rim sequence. What makes them far more important than the prefigurations is that, at present, they inform the two greatest ongoing revolutionary Maoist movements of the contemporary conjuncture, the People's War in India and the Philippines, respectively, both of which identify themselves as Maoist revolutions. But the fact that they are adjacent, and not merely prefigurative, demonstrates the significance of the PCP-RIM sequence, as I shall argue below. The People's War in India, led by the CPI Maoist, is probably the easiest to grasp as an adjacent process that confirms the significance of the PCP-RIM sequence. Although Charu Majumdar led the Communist Party of India Marxist-Leninist, CPIML, pre-existed the PCP in the RIM, it was veiling itself as Maoist as it associated itself with the original Naxal Rebellion, like the majority of the new communist movement, it never really theorized Maoism as a third stage, and was instead an anti-revisionist variant of Marxism-Leninism declaring, quote, China's chairman is our chairman, unquote. When it fragmented into multiple proto-Maoist groups, however, two of these groups ended up joining the RIM, the Maoist Communist Center, MCC, and the Communist Party of India, Marxist-Leninist, Naxal Bari, CPIML, Naxal Bari. At the high point of the RIM, the MCC ended up uniting with another post-Majumdar Indian revolutionary organization, the Communist Party of India Marxist-Leninist People's War Group, CPIML-PWG, and their unity would be on the basis of Marxism-Leninism-Maoism and not Marxism-Leninism-Mao Zedong thought. The CPIML Naxalbari would join the CPI Maoist years later, after the dissolution of the RIM, thus signifying the importance of the theoretical conjuncture that the PCP-RIM sequence had sealed. Ajith, one of RIM's primary theorists of Maoism qua Maoism, was now a theorist of the CPI Maoist. The overall point here is that although aspects of the Maoism developing in the People's War in India were adjacent to the PCP-RIM process, it also immediately connected to this process in its current understanding of MLM 
cannot be treated as separate any more than the Communist Party of Turkey, Marxist-Leninist, TKP slash ML, or the Maoist Communist Party of Turkey, MKP, are separate from this process. The People's War in the Philippines, however, is different from the Indian case because the Communist Party of the Philippines, CPP, never joined the rim, and yet was pursuing a people's war under the name of Maoism before the PCP initiated its own people's war, and declared Maoism as the third stage of revolutionary science. Since the CPP initially embraced an ideology of anti-revisionist Marxism-Leninism, eventually adopting the terminology Mao Zedong thought, it might seem that the CPP is not properly Maoist, as some have claimed. Indeed, in Stand for Socialism Against Modern Revisionism, a classic CPP anti-revisionist text from 1992, Marxism-Leninism is the terminology used for revolutionary science. In this sense, it may appear as if the CPP is closer to the CPIML, or at least similar to the NCM Marxist-Leninist-Maoist groupings in its understandings of Marxism. At the same time, however, the CPP participated as observers in the first RIM meeting, and those Maoist organizations that came out of RIM largely recognized the CPP's People's War as an advanced Maoist revolution. Most importantly, however, is the fact that the 2016 Constitution of the Communist Party of the Philippines begins by asserting the universality of Marxism-Leninism-Maoism. Although it is also the case that the same document later uses the term Mao Zedong thought, it does so as a synonym of Maoism as the highest stage of revolutionary theory by again asserting its universality. Due to the fact that the anti-revisionist Marxism that used the terminology Mao Zedong thought in the NCM did not assert that Mao Zedong thought was universal but, instead, asserted only the universality of Marxism-Leninism, we should understand that this term's usage here is conceptually different in the way that Maoism has become conceptually different after the PCP-RIM process. The odd use of it is perhaps due to José María Sassón's backpedaling where, in the years before the drafting of the Constitution, he asserted that there was no real difference between Maoism and Mao Zedong thought. Whatever the case, the shift from Marxism-Leninism to Marxism-Leninism-Maoism was significant enough that the party would not in 2017 that the Second Congress in 2016 amended the CPP Constitution to reflect the party's experience in applying Marxism-Leninism-Maoism as the ideological guide in its concrete revolutionary practice. Thus, by the time it celebrated its 50th anniversary in 2018, the CPP was calling its ideology Marxism-Leninism-Maoism, proclaiming that MLM was universally applicable, and defining the universal aspects of this theory in terms that echoed the foundational rim and conception of MLM. None of this is to say that these adjacent emergences of MLM are homogeneous with the PCP rim process or with each other, but only that they are adjacent to the latter's conception of MLM and eventually participated, echoed, and reasserted the conception of MLM. Although some aspects of the PCP rim conception of MLM are not accepted in these adjacent versions that exist as a constellation around the point of origin, for example, the universality of protracted people's war, it is notable that they otherwise are largely in agreement with the way in which the RIM statement conceptualized Maoism. In fact, we can argue that they were pulled along by this statement, and the way it influenced the international Maoist milieu considering that the claim of Maoism's universality, that is, the notion that it is the third and highest stage of revolutionary science, became normative. Moreover, as I argued in Continuity and Rupture, the fact that revolutionary parties such as the CPP still deny the universality of protracted people's war is somewhat meaningless since they are engaged in people's war themselves, and thus proving its significance in practice, and are not based in the imperialist metropoles and thus cannot really speak to the strategy of particular contexts outside of their revolutionary practice. The larger point is that the PCP-RIM process is the locus of Marxism-Leninism-Maoism and, regardless of the defeat of the People's War in Peru and the collapse of the RIM, 
It was monumental enough to pull in these adjacent anti-revisionist movements grouped around the experience of the Chinese Revolution and influence their ideological perspective. So let us conclude this chapter with some thoughts on the significance of the PCP-RIM process. Why PCP to RIM? The fact that the PCP declared Maoism as the third stage of revolutionary science, and not as a name simply designating the most faithful iteration of Marxism-Leninism in the face of revisionism, right at the moment when capitalism declared itself victorious is significant. Most prefigurations of the Mao stage were gravely affected by this event. Some vanished with their adherents becoming liberals, reactionaries, or cynics. Many others tried to adapt their leftism to the quote truth unquote of the death of quote really existing socialism unquote, but a minority would pass through this catastrophe upon the path opened by the PCP. The traumatic nature of this event, combined with China's journey into revisionism, cannot be dismissed. By the mid-1980s, there was a worldwide collapse of innumerable revolutionary movements as defeatism became imminent, encouraged by the ascendant Cold War ideology about communist terror, gulags, show trials, cultural revolution trauma, etc. No longer possessing centers of knowledge production that could challenge these bourgeois and imperialist discourses, the worldwide movement imploded, saturated in the malaise of failure, like the nihilism that came from Nietzsche's death of God, and more than one disaffected former militant drew this comparison. For example, in his 1985 treatise, Can Politics Be Thought?, the formerly, quote, Maoist, unquote, philosopher Elaine Badu wrote, quote, Marxism began once, between 1840 and 1850. After that, in the history inaugurated by this beginning, it has known various stages, for example, the victory of October 1917, and the theoretic political form of Leninism. Today it is much more than a stage that is at issue. To speak of a stage would mean that the first beginning is still valid but we introduce precisely the radical hypothesis that this beginning has ceased to be valid, and that it is an entire cycle of existence of Marxism that has come to an end in the phenomenon of expatriation." Unquote. First of all, this statement indicates yet again that the UCFML never truly held that Maoism was a third stage, just as he did with the theory of the subject, one of its prime ideologues treats only two stages as universal. More importantly, though, we witness the sacrifice of scientific thought upon the altar of capitalist quote, end of history, unquote. The irony is that this transitional treatise is about thinking politics. He cannot think the essential political meaning of Marxism, the unfolding of a scientific terrain, because the trauma of the event of worldwide capitalist victory occludes this insight. Without scientific continuity, there can only be political rupture, and thus Badu poses a doctrine of absolute rupture, quote, Marxism has completed its first existence, unquote. And yet, at the same time of Badu's pronouncement, another ruptural moment takes place, but one that ruptures only from revisionism and defeatism to declare a universal continuity with the science of revolution, the People's War in Peru where Maoism is declared as a third stage. The fact that this sequence is beginning when Badu writes his political organization out of Marxist continuity demonstrates that even the most prescient prefigurations were nothing more than prefigurations. They did not grasp what was at stake, nor were they willing to pay attention to what was happening in the global peripheries. The fact that we find a people's war declaring a third stage right at the collapse of quote, really existing socialism, unquote, is thus significant. Revolution is happening just when we are told that it should not happen, that everything should accord to the capitalist, quote, new world order, unquote. More importantly, the declaration of the PCP resonates with a new international communist movement. Various worldwide revolutionary organizations come together under the auspice of the revolutionary international movement with the PCP to eventually think the PCP's claims. In 1993, the RIM, which includes the PCP and many remaining anti-revisionist communist organizations worldwide, collectively agrees that Maoism is the third stage of revolutionary science. 
The PCP's wager is endorsed by numerous groups worldwide. The basis of Maoism is decided upon collectively, and hence this third stage is consummated. While there are adjacent developments that inform contemporary Maoism, as I noted in the previous section, the parallel influence of the PCP RIM experience is singular in its ability to generate the framework of a coherent theoretical terrain. Here it is necessary to assert that there can be no Maoism without the RIM, despite the fact that the quote principally Maoist unquote trend maintains that there is no legitimate sequence between the PCP and the RIM, asserting the former is the only legitimate origin point. In the course of upholding the importance of the People's War in Peru, this tendency has either downplayed the significance of the RIM or, even worse, maintained that the RIM articulation of Maoism, as codified in the 1993 statement, was a rightist deviation of Maoism. Upholding the PCP as the sole generator of Maoism, with its connection to the RIM downplayed, permits a curious doctrine of Maoism to emerge. All of the applications of revolutionary science to the particular circumstances of Peru, the militarization of the party, Jefatura, concentric construction, which did not find their way into the 1993 RIM statement, are elevated to the level of universality. We thus observe the curious practice of Maoists in the US and Europe, declaring that revolution must be built precisely according to the practices of the PCP in Peru, and that Gonzalo is, quote, the four-sword, unquote, of Marxism, even though the People's War in Peru, despite its contributions to world revolution, ultimately failed and fell short of the Chinese Revolution. Most importantly, though, the PCP was part of the RIM and a signatory of the 1993 statement. Other revolutionary organizations around the world, some of which were quite important and made their own contributions to Maoism, participated in a process, transforming the PCP's claim that Maoism was a new stage of revolutionary science into a claim that was no longer regional but global. Although there were participants in this process who lost their way, those who fell to a Vakianite post-Maoism, or Prashanda's capitulation in Nepal, there were also those who stayed the course to develop Maoism further in the course of their own struggles, i.e. the Afghan and Indian Maoists. Moreover, as aforementioned, the PCP also collapsed having splintered when its original central committee was captured and, unlike the Indians or Filipinos, whose people's wars have survived the arrest and exile of leadership, collapsed. Indeed, the assessment of the RIM's failures on the part of the Afghans and Indians has placed the heirs of the PCP alongside those of the Avakianites and the Prashandites. Those who seek to uphold the People's War in Peru over and above the RIM experience, isolating an Ur-Maoism prior to 1993's statement, must retreat into magical thinking. First of all, they are forced to ignore the fact that the PCP itself signed the 1993 statement that globally codified Marxism-Leninism-Maoism. Secondly, in their bid to elevate the pre-RIM Maoism of the PCP, they have to account for why this regionalist interpretation of Maoism resulted in a failure that could not even approach the successes of the October Revolution and the Chinese Revolution, let alone the revolutionary high tide of the latter's great proletarian cultural revolution. Their answer seems to be an appeal to circumstances beyond the control of the PCP. The movement failed to protect its great leadership. Such failure is thus treated as the movement's only failure, even though it is based on external circumstances, the Central Committee's capture, rather than internal circumstances, though Mao teaches us that it is the latter that is decisive. As mentioned, the People's War in the Philippines and India have survived the capture and assassination of Central Committees. To blame the failures of a People's War on its inability to protect its original Central Committee is not only tantamount to blaming the masses for events that necessarily happen in the course of a revolution, but to fall prey to a magical interpretation of history. If only the right leaders had remained in command, if only they weren't captured or killed, everything would have proceeded according to plan. The other justification for asserting the primacy of the PCP interpretation of Maoism over that of the RIM is that the former came first, but this is logically inadmissible. That which comes first is not necessarily superior or purer, 
Conservatives use arguments from tradition all the time, and we rightly dismiss such nonsense. Within the overall terrain of Marxism, upholding the first in line is quite silly. The Trotskyists, for example, were the first to declare a fourth international, but we know that when a new international is actually built, something that the former Rim hoped to promote, we will not pretend that the Trotskyist fourth international, since it was declared first, was more meaningful than an actual fourth international. Within the subterrain of Maoism, we already know that what is declared first is in itself meaningless. The UCFML declared Maoism before the PCP, but, as discussed above, we have good reason to reject this declaration even though it was declared first. Although it is indeed important to recognize that there was something ruptural in the PCP's initial declaration of Maoism as a third stage of revolutionary science, it is not until this declaration was consummated and the rim experienced, refined and globalized, that we can speak of Maoism. Even if in speaking this Maoism, we must also be critical of the shortcomings of the beginning of its sequence. Hence, those who seek to sever the PCP rim sequence by endorsing only its former half are demonstrably incapable of thinking Maoist reason. That is, they cannot think what makes historical materialism scientific and how this science develops through class struggle. The struggle against this particular dogmatism thus becomes a struggle that is supremely important for the survival of Maoism. And if Maoism, which is the most advanced articulation of revolutionary science, cannot survive, then the barbarism promised by capitalism will reign supreme.